the story of Christmas uh, begins with a promise. Uh, that's what we talked about last week. It doesn't begin with the shepherds or the wise men or a virgin or her fiance, Joseph. Uh, the Christmas story actually begins with a promise and it begins with a promise to Abraham. Uh, and God promised Abraham 2000 years before Bethlehem, uh, God promised Abraham that one day he would father a family and that family would become a nation. And one day that nation would become a kingdom. And Abraham's descendants would be God's chosen people through whom he would save the people of the earth. Uh, and that storyline, that, that promise that begins in Genesis chapter 12, the promise that God made to Abraham, that begins to be the storyline. That begins to be the arc of the narrative from Genesis chapter 12, all the way through the Old Testament to the final book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. So if you wanna know what the Old Testament is about, it's about a promise that God made to Abraham and it's about his family and it's about that nation and it's about that kingdom and how God is going to use the nation and the kingdom and the people of Israel to bring salvation to the nations of the world. And so all throughout the Old Testament, it's the story of how God is working in and through history in order to keep that promise. And that's what we see as we read through both the minor prophets and the major prophets and the books of history and the books of poetry. And also as we read throughout the Old Testament, no matter what exactly is going on. And like I said last week, it's easy to get you know inundated and bogged down and lost in the parts of the Old Testament that we don't understand or we love to debate or, or we quite, you know, can't make sense of it, you know, in our modern sensibilities. The Old Testament, we have a real propensity to get lost in the parts and miss the point. And all throughout the Old Testament, what we see is a promise that's made. And we find that there's always a group of people, a small remnant of men and women like us, a small group of men and women who were like Psalms 130 taught us, like a group of watchmen on the wall, waiting for the dawn to break. That the Old Testament remnant of God, a group of faithful men and women who believed God's promise, they were like watchmen on the wall, waiting for the dawn to break, the morning to break, the day when God would keep his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even his promise that he made to David, that one day one of David's descendants would be a king who would be above all kings, that he would reign over a kingdom which would topple all kingdoms. And in the Old Testament, it's generation after generation, century after century, of men and women of faith who hung their hope who hung their hope on the promises of God. And they lived their life in the present with a confidence that a future reality that was not yet reality would one day be reality simply because, only because God said so. God promised it would be so. So they watched and they waited. They watched and they waited from Genesis 12 through the end of Malachi. They watched and they waited like watchmen on the wall, waiting for the dawn of the day when God's promises would come to pass. And that's how the Old Testament ends with a group of people on the wall, sitting in the darkness of their lives, waiting for the dawn to break. The darkness of their lifetime, the darkness of their circumstances, the darkness of their pain, their disappointment, their despair. Like many of us are called to do, that we sit in the darkness of our circumstance and we wait like watchmen on the wall, waiting for God to keep his promises to us, just like Israel waited for God to keep his promises to them. And so as the New Testament opens up, it's been 500 years since there's been a miracle. Now think about that for a moment. You, you think to yourself, say, my faith would be a lot stronger if I could see a miracle, if I could experience a miracle. Five, 
100 years go by, no miracle. 400 years go by, God doesn't say a word. 400 years of silence in between the last book of the Old Testament and the opening pages of the New Testament. And then in the darkness of it all, in the silence of it all, the dawn begins to break and an angel appeared to an aged priest by the name of Zechariah and told Zechariah, Zechariah, you're old, you don't have any children. Your wife Elizabeth, she's not that young either, but you're gonna have a son. And this son that's gonna be born to you and Elizabeth is gonna some way prepare the way for the world to embrace the Messiah, that he's gonna pave the way, he's gonna prepare the way for the entrance or the arrival of the Messiah, the King, the Savior that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God begins to move and God begins to work and it's really the first miraculous thing that's happened in five centuries and it's the first thing that God has uttered in four centuries. And the tension of the Christmas story is, is this, it's beautiful but, but yet it's troubling and it kind of makes us uncomfortable. You know, the tension of the Christmas story that begins to be presented to us from the very beginning is this, that the dawn has begun to break but nobody really knows it. God has begun to speak, but nobody really hears it. God is keeping his promise, but the world's not watching, the world's not listening. And while the world's not watching and the world's not listening, Christmas is coming. And God is in the process of keeping his promise. The world is about to change and the world doesn't even know it. And so God speaks to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then six months later, I mean, the Christmas story really gets into full motion. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, and he finds Mary, and he says, Mary, you're gonna have a child. And she goes, but I'm a virgin. And he's like, you're gonna have a child, but I'm a virgin. You're gonna have a child. And you're gonna have to tell me more because I took biology from my local schoolmaster across the street. You know, I know enough. How's this working? He says, well, the Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you, and the power of the Most High is gonna overshadow you so that the baby born to you, he's gonna be holy, and he's gonna be the Son of God. And we're gonna talk more about that next week of why the virgin birth is, is such an important facet of what we believe as Christians and why it's necessity uh, to the faith that we have about Jesus and what his death means and what his resurrection means. So don't miss next week. And so, you know, the angel Gabriel tells Mary, says, okay, this is what's gonna happen. And then, you know, he wraps up and this is where we dropped off last week. He tells Mary, he said, this is gonna happen because no word from God will ever fail. Uh, can we all just read that out loud? Every church, every campus on three, one, two, three, for no word from God will ever fail. When you're sitting in the darkness of your circumstance and you're sitting in the darkness of your pain and your disappointment and your despair, when you sit in the darkness of your life and you're waiting for the dawn to break, you're waiting for God to keep some of his promises, you just need to remind yourself that no word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. In other words, whenever God speaks a promise, all space, time, and matter begins to coalesce around the words of God. And it begins to bring what God said into reality. It doesn't always happen quickly. Sometimes it takes centuries. Sometimes it takes over a millennium for God's words to bring about the reality that they spoke when the promise was first uttered. And that's what we see happening in the opening pages of the New Testament. All of reality is coalescing around the promise that God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12. 2,000 years before. And now all of a sudden, space, time, and matter, and history, it all converges in the opening pages of the New Testament in order to bring about the fulfillment of God's promises. So as the New Testament opens up, it's standing on the shoulders of the Old Testament. 
The New Testament narrative is a continuation of the Old Testament promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's really a continuation of the story that began in Genesis. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, when they decided to go south and rebel and they went their own way and they rebelled and rejected God. And when they went their own way, they lost their way. And from Genesis three and Genesis 12, Throughout the Old Testament is, is the story of God doing whatever it takes to win his family back. It's the story of God coming after you. It's the story of God coming after me, coming after us to save us, to save us from sin and to save us from ourselves. And this is really where the Christmas story picks up. And specifically, it's where Matthew picks up on his version of the Christmas story. Matthew writes about Christmas. Luke writes about Christmas. John writes about it from some cosmic theological perspective. Mark, he didn't have time to deal with Christmas. Bit of a Grinch. He skips it all together and just picks up with John the Baptist. But this is how Matthew writes about Christmas. And I, this, is, this is where we're going to camp out for the next few minutes. He says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. Now, this is important because he's about to tell us an important story, and this is an important detail. Because in those days, engagements were as bonding as marriage. And once you were engaged, it was in many ways like you were married. Because if you stepped outside that engagement with somebody else, you could be stoned for that. You could be killed for that. So he wants us to know there's an engagement in place. And it's more than the engagement that you had. It's more than the engagement that I had. I mean, this was a bonding legal arrangement. This was a contract. So this was a big deal. So Matthew is setting the stage for the story that he's about to tell us. He says, but before the marriage... Before the marriage, while she was still a virgin, because it's an important part of the story. And if you were gonna get married in those days, the expectation, the requirement essentially was that you were gonna marry a virgin. Uh, that you, you, you were gonna marry someone who had never been with anybody else, who never had any sexual activity with anybody else. And so Matthew says, hey, before, before they got married, while they were engaged, while Mary was still a virgin, she became pregnant. <laughs> and we've been in church all our lives and we just read this and like, we don't even, we don't even bat an eye. And it's like, but let's stop and think for a moment. While she was still a virgin, she became pregnant. Let me tell you how we've become desensitized to the story of Christmas because we don't feel anything oftentimes when we read that. There's no dismay. There's no disbelief. There's no like, yeah, right. You won't even believe the nightly news guy. And he's got footage. And here we've got a document 2,000 years old saying that a virgin got pregnant. We're like, okay, well, what else you got? Sure she did. Sure she did. And that's not sure she did. This is like crazy. This is like the circus came to town. Hey, let me show you Mary. She's pregnant. Virgin. Pregnant. Everybody come look at this. I mean, she's like, you know, this is unheard of. This is not normal. Nobody was looking for this. Nobody was expecting this. And this, this ought to just sit on us with the weight of what Matthew's trying to say. But she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, now we do know that, you know, Gabriel appears to Mary. We just read a little bit of that conversation. But after that conversation, we can only read between the lines that Mary knew that the angel, I mean, she's, she's seen an angel. She's been face to face with Gabriel and, and, and he's pretty terrifying. And 
the angel says, you're going to be pregnant. And there was the glory of God and there was lots and it was pretty impressive. And so she, she kind of takes the angel at his word because she's never seen an angel before. And now apparently she's pregnant and there's been something that happens. And, you know, her wombs become the holies of holies in some way. And the glory of God, the son of God, the Lord himself is somehow in her womb. And, and here she is, a teenage girl, probably somewhere around 13 or 14 years old. And she's trying to absorb all this. And one of the first thoughts, obviously, is, well, I've got to talk to Joe. i got to talk to Jay. <laughs> Jojo, Joey, whatever she called him, Joseph, i got to talk to him. i, I, got, I got to tell him what's going on. And, you know, and so when you set down your fiance that you've never had sex with, and you set that fiance down that you've never had sex with to tell them that you're pregnant, but don't worry. It's God's. <laughs> Nothing to worry about, JJ. Nothing. This God. Hey, listen, I met an angel. The angel told me, you know, his name was Gabriel. And she, Gabriel wasn't my date. He was just a messenger. And so Gabriel showed up and said, you know, this is going to happen, and it's happened, and I'm pregnant. And so she tells Joseph, and, you know, you would imagine. Joseph didn't buy it. So how do you know Joseph didn't buy it? Because he says, Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. Now, let me tell you what should make us suspicious. If the text had said, and Mary told her fiancé Joseph that she'd never had sex with before, that she was pregnant, and Joseph responded, well, that must be obviously because the Lord himself is the Father. And you are carrying God himself in your womb. Hey, I rejoice with you, Mary. I am so excited about this. Now, if the text would have said something goofy like that, we, we should just put a whole question mark above the entire text because it just doesn't feel real. It doesn't seem human. But the fact that Joseph didn't believe what Mary had to say, that feels natural. That feels real. That feels like what we would expect to happen if a story that really happened took place. And so he's a good guy. He doesn't believe her. He thinks, you know, she's, she's wondered. She, she met somebody. Apparently his name's Gabriel, but now she calls him an angel. And, and her and Gabriel have met, and apparently, you know, something's happened, and she's pregnant, and he doesn't believe it, but yet he's a good guy. He doesn't want to put her in danger because she could be stoned. She could be put to death. He doesn't want to create a public embarrassment for her, for him, for their families. So he just wants to handle this discreetly. And it says, as he considered this, as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. <laughs> it would take that. Joseph, son of David, the angel said. And again, son of David is an important detail only if the Old Testament has a continued relevance in the New Testament story. And because it has a continued relevance, Matthew wants to make sure that we understand that Joseph is a descendant of David. He said, the angel said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Joseph, you're afraid. Understand. Who would believe such a thing? But the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then this next verse is the verse that I want us to lean into. This is the verse that I want us to just let seep into our hearts and our minds because this is gonna be the springboard verse from which Matthew will tell the rest of his story throughout his biography of Jesus that we call the Gospel of Matthew. The angel said, and she will have a son and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. And from the very beginning, the angel did not miss one word that was important when he talked to Joseph. Joseph, you can believe Mary. She has conceived by the Holy Spirit. And this child shall be called Jesus. 
because he's going to save his people from his sin. That's why this child is being born. This is the continuation of a promise that was made to your forefathers, Joseph, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to David. You're a part of the line of David. You're part of the house of Jesse. And you have heard these promises that they've been handed down generation after generation after generation. Joseph, the dawn of the day has come. The day in which God will begin to keep his promises to your forefathers and your foremothers. God is beginning to keep that promise right now. He's gonna come and he's gonna save his people from their sin, from heartbreaking, gut-wrenching, mind-wounding sin. That's why he's coming, the angel said, that Jesus is coming to save people from sin, sin that destroys lives, sin that destroys families, sin that destroys futures. Joseph, that's why this child is being born. He's coming to save us from our sin. And it's not gonna be just because he's born and because there's a kingdom. It's much more than that. It's got to do with you, Joseph. It's got to do with the peoples of the world, Joseph. He's gonna save us from destroying our lives, from destroying our families, from destroying our futures. He's gonna save us. He's gonna save us from the deception of sin. And you know about the deception of sin, how sin, it's so, so insidious. It can actually convince you that up is down and down is up and right is left and left is right. It, sin is so deceptive, it can convince you that what you believe is right, it, it's wrong. Or what's wrong is right. It, it, it confuses and it deceives and you, you just get lost in sin. He's coming to save us from the deception of sin. Joseph, he's coming to save us from the power of sin. Because sin has the power to enslave us, to master us, to take our will away from us as it were. He came to save us from the penalty of sin because the penalty of sin is death. It's always death. That's what sin always brings. It always brings death. And this is why the angel said, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. For tonight in the city of David is born a savior, Jesus. This is what Matthew is telling us. He came to save sinners. That's what Christmas is all about. This is the story that Matthew's telling throughout his gospel. Call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from his sin. Now, we're going to talk more about his birth next week. But fast forward with me for just a moment, 30 years. Jesus is born, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger. There's shepherd, there's wise men. They're all the things. We'll talk about them in the next couple of weeks. But fast forward 30 years later, Jesus basically, we're told about his birth. But then he kind of disappears, and we don't know that much about him for the next 30 or so years until he's publicly introduced to the world by that son that Gabriel told Zachariah and Elizabeth would be born to them. You know him by his name, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And John is baptizing at the River Jordan and he looks up to thousands of people who've come out from Judea and Jerusalem to hear his message. And he looks up and he sees his cousin Jesus walking towards the water to be baptized. And he stops his sermon and he says, everybody, I want you to look. Behold the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sin of the world. He's come to save us from sin. That's why he's come. And Jesus steps on to the public pages of history. And, and Matthew describes it this way, that when Jesus went public, he says, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The watchmen on the wall are seeing the first beams of light. 
That's how Matthew described the arrival of Jesus, a light breaking into the darkness, a people who've been sitting in darkness. All of a sudden, a new day is dawning. It says that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news. Everybody say good news. news. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And so Matthew's just warming up. He's telling a story. He's just not telling us about Christmas. He's telling us about a story that he's trying to get to because there's a point to it. And he says, Jesus showed up and he started preaching, not just news, but good news. It was almost too good to be true type of news. It was good news for all the people. Uh, What Jesus had to say and what Jesus was preaching, I want you to think about this. What Jesus had to say and what Jesus was preaching, it didn't sound depressive. It didn't sound like a burden. It didn't sound restrictive. It sounded like freedom. It sounded like rest. Matter of fact, that's how Jesus referred to his own message that the burden was light, the yoke was easy. It was freedom, it was rest. It was in direct competition and contrast to the message of the religion of his day, Judaism, and that of the religious establishment of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law and the scribes. What they preached sounded oppressive. It sounded like a burden, it sounded restrictive. But what Jesus showed up preaching, it sounded like freedom. It sounded like a fresh breath of air. It sounded like rest. That's the reason Jesus said, come unto me, all of you who are weary and exhausted and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the news that Jesus had to share, it almost sounded too good to be true. That God loves you. He loves you even if you don't love him. God loves you no matter who you are, and God loves you no matter what you've done. And the good news of what Jesus had to say was, he looked at all the people, because it was good news of great joy for all the people, that there's room in God's family for you. And there's a seat at God's table for you. He's inviting you into his family, and he's inviting you to the seat at his table. That's the good news. So come on in. Don't waste any time. You're welcome. You're invited in. The good news was that there's forgiveness for all your failure. The good news is that there's mercy for all the mess you've made. There's grace for all of your guilt. And to God's grace and to God's mercy and to God's love, there's no bounds. There's no limits. There's no prerequisites. There's no strings that are attached. It was good news that created great joy. Why is it that church people are some of the most miserable people on the face of the planet? Is it perhaps that we've forgotten that it's good news that leads to great joy? And if the message of Jesus that we're trying to present to the world, if it doesn't sound like freedom, if it doesn't sound like rest, if it doesn't feel like a fresh breath of air, maybe we're not telling it right. Maybe we're not articulating it right. Maybe we misunderstand it. The good news is that when God's love comes up against your sin, God's love wins every single time. Now you can, you can, you can demonstrate and you can, yeah, go ahead. Caught on slow, but you got in, right? You caught in. Thank God for those, those remnant that gets it started. You can describe the, you know, the good news lots of ways, but here's how I will frame it in the way that Matthew presents it. The good news is this. God's capacity to forgive is greater than my capacity to sin. 
God's capacity to forgive sin is greater than my capacity to commit sin. You know what you call that? Good news. That your capacity to sin, and you uniquely understand your capacity to sin, I uniquely understand my capacity to sin. And I'm telling you, I'm a class 1A all-star when it comes to sinning. I, I have a long runway when it comes to sin. I'm a creative sinner. I, I'm really, I'm, I'm really a savant. I am. I, I mean, I feel like I'm an expert. I feel like I got a PhD. I feel like, you know, man, I know my capacity to sin. But Jesus showed up to say, regardless of your capacity to sin, to sin God's capacity to forgive is greater than your capacity to sin. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul said it this way, where sin did abound in my life, I looked back and I found out grace did much more abound, that I couldn't out the grace of God. Now, I don't suggest you try, but you can't out the grace of God. You just can't. It's amazing. It's marvelous. It's without bounds. It's without limits. And so Jesus, he taught this and he preached this and it attracted some and it offended others, to which just a note of... Um, commentary for free, it still is that way. It attracts some and it offends others. For some, it's very threatening to say that the love of God is without restrictions, it's without bounds, it's without prerequisites, that you can't out the grace of God, that God's capacity to forgive is always greater than our capacity to sin. That makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And they start asking questions, what do you mean by that? Well, what if this and what if that? Well, there were people just like that in the first century, and some people didn't like what Jesus had to say because it cut against everything that had ever been taught by mommy and by daddy and by grandpappy and grandmammy about God and about people. Because the people in the first century, they've been taught that, hey, God, God loves people, but he loves good people. He loves moral people. He, he loves people who've got it together. He, he, he loves the people whose lives aren't a mess, whose lives aren't disheveled. That's the people God really is attracted to. That's the people that God really is interested in. The people, you know, who had been taught, hey, you got to work for your relationship with God. You, you got to work to be good with God. You got to put in the effort to be good with God because forgiveness isn't free. You're going to have to do some penance. There's sacrifices to be made. There's prayers to be recited. There's some things you got to do. There's some trips to the synagogue, some trips to the temple that you got to take care of for you and God to be good. But Jesus shows up with the good news and says, you know what? I agree, forgiveness isn't free. It's costly and it's so costly you can't possibly ever imagine that you would be able to pay it. But the good news is you don't have to pay it. God has made arrangements to pay your debt for you. God is gonna pay a debt he doesn't owe because you owe a debt that you can't possibly pay. And again, this is the good news. And it's like, well, that's not fair, it's not. But Jesus has showed up to change what people think of when they think about God, when they think about sin, and what they think about when they think about sinners. Christmas is all about the fact that you should call his name Jesus because he's gonna save his people from their sin. He's gonna break down all the categories. He's gonna break down all the labels that causes religion to build a hierarchy of sin and sinners. Because there's big sin and there's medium-sized sin and there's small sins and you don't have to feel bad about your small sin, but feel bad if it's the big sin. You know, if you're, if you're sinning in this list, you're, you're, you're just going to hell. If you're sinning in this list, you're kind of backslid, but it's not that bad. If you're over here and you're sinning in this column, it just means you're a church member in good standing. You don't have anything to worry about. 
So there's all these, there are all these categories and things. It's like, okay, I can do this, but boy, I know a bunch of people who do that. But because I do this and they do that, somehow I have a little bit of moral high ground. So when we preach, we're going to preach about people outside of our list because that's the way we can celebrate and generate momentum and synergy and energy in the service. Everybody kind of gets unitized when we pick on other people's sin. We don't want to pick on our own sin. Who enjoys that? Let's pick on the people who aren't there and their sin or that one person who showed up on that one Sunday and we recognize them. We know what their sin is. So let's just hit them and hit them hard. And that's kind of the way, you know, a lot of people, you know, were raised and you found your place in that system. And whenever you found your place in that hierarchy of sin and sinners, you found out how God felt about you. And once you found out how God felt about you, you understood whether you were in or whether you were out because your place on the hierarchy and the type of sin and the type of sinner you were, that, that was all determinant of how God felt about you. And God was looking at this list and God was keeping score and it was that list and that was what was deciding whether you were in or out, whether you were invited or whether you were kicked out or holy or unholy. There was a list at Christmas and God was checking it more than twice. And he always knows who's naughty and nice. And we got the naughty and nice list and it's not a Christmas list, but it's a religious list. And everybody kind of knows, well, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I admit I'm a sinner, but I'm not a bad sinner. Because Christians are smart. We know when stuff just sounds stupid. Are you a sinner? Oh, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm, the part that we don't say, but the part that we feel and the part that we practically live out with a lot of people in our world is, well, I'm not as bad of a sinner as, and I'm not the problem like, mm. And Matthew, he, he knows this story because what? He was on the list and he wasn't on the nice list. He was on the unholy list, the uninvited list, the unclean list. He was on the list you don't wanna be on. He'd been disinvited from the temple, all the things. But somehow he got hooked up with Jesus and he began to realize that God may not see him the way that religion sees him and that God doesn't see him the way religious people have chosen to see him. And Matthew goes on to what I believe is maybe, it's maybe one of the most influential passages to me in the New Testament, which is why I, I just regurgitate it to you all the time. And you're probably sick of hearing it, but that's okay. There's lots of church options that you can check out. But I think that this is fundamental. I think that this is elementary. I think that this is so important for us to understand our relationship vertically with God. I think this is so important for us to understand our horizontal relationships with people. And, and Matthew is the one who tells us, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, because he saw the crowds, he saw the people, and he just didn't look at them, he saw them, he saw their lifestyle, he saw their habits, he saw their bad decisions, their inconsistencies, their hypocrisy, their struggles, their deception, their confusion, uh, their weaknesses, their failures. He saw it, he saw it all. I mean, when he looked at people, I mean, he saw through all the stuff, all the masks, all the facade, he saw them. He looked beyond, in some way, that lifestyle, those habits, those bad decisions. He looked beyond the inconsistencies and the hypocrisy and the struggle. He, he looked beyond it all, and he saw the sinner. He saw beyond the sin, and he saw the sinner. He saw beyond the categories, and beyond the labels that politics had placed on people, that society had placed on people, that religion had placed on people, and Jesus looked beyond all of those labels and categories, and Jesus saw the person. Amen. 
And Jesus, I think every time that he looked at someone and he saw them for who they were, and he knew everything about who they were, he just reminded himself, my name is Jesus, and I've come to save sinners from their sin. Those are the people that I've come to save. And when he saw them, it doesn't say that he had contempt for them. Doesn't, doesn't say that he was angry towards them. You know what it says. It says that he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. And it's the same word that Jesus used in the story of the prodigal son. That once the son had left home, spent his inheritance, got in the hog pen, that when he came back home, the father saw him from afar off and he had compassion on his son. Not anger, not condemnation. What did the father feel for his son? Compassion. Because that's what a father feels when he sees his son coming back home. That's what a father feels when he thinks his son who is dead is now coming back home alive. The son that's been lost is now found. When the father saw the son, he didn't see a screw up and he didn't see a mess up. And he didn't see someone who was one big, huge disappointment or embarrassment. He saw his son and he knew his name and he saw him as a son. He saw beyond what happened. He saw beyond all the things that must have been said and all the things that must have been done. He saw beyond the mud of the hog pen that was still on him. He saw beyond the stench of all of his choices, beyond all the broken relationships and the disappointment of his departure. The father saw his son and he had compassion on him. And the father, listen to this, the father embraced that son as though nothing had happened. What? as though nothing had ever happened, as though nothing had ever changed. He threw a party for him, you know the story. The son had broken the father's heart, broken the father's rules, but he had not been able to break the father's love. And this is how, this is how Matthew says Jesus saw people. It's how he felt about people. Didn't matter what they'd done. He saw beyond it all, he saw beyond the mud, he saw beyond the stench, he saw beyond the category. And it didn't matter to him. Those descriptors didn't matter to him. There were no big sins and little sins to him. They were just sinners to be saved from the power and the tyranny and the deception of sin. And Matthew, I think he wants us all to understand, especially as we contemplate Christmas, that God loves you, he isn't mad at you. Jesus didn't show up to condemn you. Jesus didn't show up to judge you. He came to save you. He came to save us. So you may be mad at yourself, but God's not mad at you. Somebody else may be mad at you, but God's not mad at you. And when he looks at me and he looks at you, yeah, he sees all the stuff, but he looks beyond all the stuff. And the person he sees, he loves. And the person he sees, he died for. And the person he sees, he offers forgiveness for the failure and mercy for the mess and grace for the guilt. And we begin to learn something really important about God because of his son, Jesus. It's that God cares more about sinners than he does their sin. Whew. What if the church could get that back in the 21st century? What if local churches could be known for that? Hey, they love sinners. They love sinners more than they hate their sin over there at that church. They care more about sinners than they do their sin over there at that church. So how, how, how do you even do that? How did Jesus do that? It's because he saw them. It says because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They've been chewed up and spit out by sin, confused and ravaged and molested by sin. They were harassed. They were helpless. They were like garbage that had been thrown away, these people. They're like a sick person left to die on the side of the road who can't help themselves. 
Like a person drowning who can't swim. Jesus said they're harassed and helpless. Look at them. They're left behind. They're dejected, rejected. That's who they are. They're sheep without a shepherd. They have no true north. They're defenseless. They've lost their way. They can't find their way. They're hopelessly, listen to me, hopelessly lost. Who's he talking about? He's talking about us. Matthew says he's talking about me. And Matthew says, I want you to know this is how Jesus sees people. This is how Jesus saw you. And that's good news that leads to great joy. And it's for all the people. Jesus saw what sin was doing to people. He saw sin as this terrible force, this terrible evil that destroys lives, that harasses men and women, that leaves them helpless, that leaves them hopelessly lost. He saw people as though they'd been wounded and attacked by sin, that they'd been left for dead, beaten and stolen from. And it broke his heart and he had compassion. Matthew says, God's heart, it leans in the direction of sinners because the angel told us from the beginning, that's why he came. Call his name Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. This means that God's heart leans in the direction of those of us whose lives are a mess. We're not good at being good. We're, we're not typically welcomed by religion or religious people. We, we struggle to keep our head above water. We're weak, we fall down, we fail. We're weak, we fall down and we fail and we do it over and over and over again. We wander away. We lead ourselves away. We get lost, we get confused, we get deceived, we believe lies. We get it wrong when we think that we're trying to get it right. We can't tell right from wrong and wrong from right and up from down and we get lost hopelessly. But God's heart has compassion on sinners. And this is what Matthew had learned from Jesus because he was a tax collector. He was the worst of the worst. But yet Jesus walked up to him one day and said, Matthew, I want you to follow me. No wonder he wrote the line that has swept the world for 2,000 years when it comes to Jesus, that he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know who a friend is? A friend is someone who not only loves you, but they like you. You know what a friend is? A friend is somebody who knows you and they choose to love you anyway. Amen. I mean, they know you. you. You got close enough, you, you just tore off all the masks, you just stopped pretending, best foot forward stuff, throw that in the garbage. Like who you are, who they are, your friends, you love each other anyway, that's friendship. Matthew says, hey, he's a friend to people like us. He knows us and not only does he loves us, he likes us. He likes us. He knows us, but he likes us anyway. And for Matthew, this was, this was staggering. Because for Matthew, most of his life, the path to God seemed way too steep. Way too hard. Way too difficult. Religion had told him all of his life, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you don't measure up. There's no place for you. What you do, what you've done, come on. You know who you are. You know there's no place for people like you. Until Jesus came up one day and said, follow me. And his life began to change. Because Matthew had been harassed and helpless 
and a sheep without a shepherd until Jesus walked up one day and said, I want to save you from yourself, from sin and all of its power and all of its deception. So no wonder, no wonder he started off with the genealogy of Jesus. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And then he gives us a long family tree of sinners. Kooky sinners, embarrassing sinners. Because he wanted us to know Jesus came from sinners, for sinners. He came from sinners, though sinless in order to save sinners from their sin. Jesus is the only God man has ever heard of who loves sinners. And you see it demonstrated throughout the gospels, throughout the gospels. You see it in John chapter eight, when the woman who was caught in the very act was dragged before Jesus. I mean, just, I mean, you can only imagine how horrifying, how embarrassing, to be, to be caught in that moment, how terrible, how shameful, how, and she's dragged to, the, to Jesus. You know the story, and Jesus says, okay, those of you without sin, cast the first stone. And I know I've told you a million times, but I'll tell you another million times if you stick around long enough. All the people who had a stone that day, Jesus said, that person without sin cast the first stone. There was only one person among them without sin that day. And he was the only one without a stone. And then they all walked away. They dropped their stones. And Jesus says, where are thine accusers? And she says, no man, Lord. And he said, well, neither do I condemn you. Go, sin no more. My favorite's Luke 23, the thief on the cross. Jesus is hanging there on the cross between two thieves and they're listening to Jesus and Jesus speaks over the heads and over the lives of the people who are putting him to death. And he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And one thief begins to taunt and insult Jesus and says, hey, you've saved others. Save yourself. Let's see it. Do a miracle. Save yourself. Save yourself. And the other thief spoke up and says, Dude, what are you doing? We're, we're punished justly. We're getting what we deserve. This man's done nothing wrong. This other thief speaks up and says, hey, friend, fellow thief, if heaven's for good people, if heaven's for rule-keeping people, moral people, religious people, if the kingdom of God is for righteous people who've got it all together, who never screw up and never fall short, hope you understand we have no choice. We have no chance, we have no hope. <laughs> We're gonna get what we deserve and what we deserve, it's not good. And in this moment, one thief realizes he has no hope. He has no chance. There's no such thing as turnover a new leaf. There's no such thing as a rededication. There's no chance for any of that. There was only a whisper of what he had heard about. Good news, great joy for all the people. And in that moment, the only thing he knew to throw himself upon was the grace and the mercy of the one who was hanging on the cross in the middle. He says, I want you to remember me. 
when you come into your kingdom. And that was all he had. There was no opportunity to do better. There was no next time. There was no opportunity for good deeds. There was no bargaining with God. There was no deal to be struck. There was only an offer too good to be true. Good news that causes great joy for all people, even a thief. And Jesus answered him and said, truly I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. And in that moment, everything in that man's life gave way to the grace of God. Every failure, every bad moment, the worst moments, every shameful act, every act of deception, the pain that he caused himself, the pain that he caused everybody else, it gave way to grace. Every failure, every weakness in that moment with the words of Jesus, it gave way to grace. All the moments that he said, I'll do better next time. All the moments that he said, God, I promise you never again. It gave way to grace. All the secret shame and all the emptiness and all the pretending and all the loneliness and all the anger and all the unforgiveness and all the stuff from childhood and all the stuff from adolescence and all the things that had ever happened to him, it gave way to grace. Today you'll be with me. I don't care if you have time to turn over a new leaf. I don't care if you have time to do penance. I don't care if you have time to pay your debt because I will pay it for you. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself because this is the reason I came. I've come to set sinners. And I'll pay the price that you can't afford. Was it fair? No. Was it grace? The only thing that God cancels sin, not sinners. So if you're bruised, if you're broken, if you're screwed up, if you're jacked up, if you're not good at being good, if religion has no place for you, and if you grew up thinking that religion has no place for you and God has no place for you and your family, that you can't put two feet in front of each other for long enough to get in and to stay in, if it's hard for you to get it all together, if it's hard for you to collect yourself, if it's hard for you to obey, if it's hard for you to understand, if it's hard for you to fit in, if it's hard for you to be like other people, if it's hard for you to get over your past, if it's hard for you to get over what somebody said or what somebody did or what you did or what you committed or who who you think you are or what label you've been wearing. He's inviting you in to the family of God because there's room for you and there's a seat at his table. Does God hate sin? Oh, he does. Do you know why God hates sin? Because he loves people and he knows what sin does to the people he loves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes, not behaves, believes, should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to Bethlehem, born of a virgin, announced by angels to condemn the world. No, the angels said, call his name Jesus, because he will save the world Father, Spirit of God, speak to our hearts. Speak in a way that only you can. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ to be the Lord of your life, I want to invite you to pray a simple prayer with me. Heavenly Father, today, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. And by faith, I receive your gift of grace. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me. 
that I can be in a relationship with you. Forgive me. Cleanse me, change me. I take my seat at your table and my place in your family because of your grace, which invites me in. In Jesus' name. If you're here today and you prayed that prayer, if you're here today and you've never been baptized, in just a moment, we're gonna baptize. And a couple of our pastors are gonna be standing down front. And if you wanna be prayed with, prayed for, I invite you to come. If, if you pray to receive Christ today or you pray to receive Christ at another time in your life and you wanna be baptized today, we have clothes for you, we have towels for you. And we would love for you to take that step today. Father, speak to our hearts. Let people move as the Spirit calls them to do so in Jesus' name.